just pray that you would bless tonight's study. And um, I, again, we're so thankful that we can be here in fellowship and be with the brethren, and it's, it's a joy. Uh, I thank you for the love that's in this church, and I thank you for the love uh, that the people have for you and desiring to know your word. And so, Lord, we want to be fed tonight, and, and we want to just glean from your um, written word here. And uh, so, Lord, just bless our hearts and teach us and uh, minister to us and, and bring instruction and, and truth to us here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in chapter 4, we got through verse 11, and you recall that in chapter 4 that the children of Israel went to war against the Philistines, and they were defeated. So they were wondering, why has God defeated us? And one of the things that we're going to see very clearly as we go through these next few chapters is that when whether you know uh, the children of Israel or the Philistines, those who are not devoted to the Lord, um, when they're not looking to his truth, when they're not looking to him, how it would, will bring foolish thinking and, and decisions that they are making. And so the children of Israel at this time in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, that their hearts are not right with the Lord. And so they've been in rebellion against the Lord. They've been worshiping the Baals and the Astaroth and the other Canaanite gods during this time of the days of the judges. We also saw that Eli, who is the judge, that is the leader of the nation at this time, and that includes being this spiritual leader because he is the high priest. He's there at the tabernacle in Shiloh, and his two sons that are ministering as priests there at the tabernacle, we saw in chapter 2 that they were full of corruption, and, and uh, they were ones that had committed great wickedness as they ministered there at the tabernacle, committing immorality, and, and, uh, and carnality was a part of their ministry. And so it was the Lord that came to Eli um, and spoke through the prophet, and Eli, that your sons are going to end up dying in one day. Your, your house is going to be judged because you did not deal with your sons and you feared them more than you feared me. So we talked about that in chapter 2, and we're going to see that here as we continue in chapter 4, that prophecy taking place. But as the children of Israel were defeated, they came up with an idea. Let's go into the tabernacle. Let's take out the Ark of the Covenant, and let's go take the Ark of the Covenant before us to battle against the Philistines. And we read through verse 11, but I want to back up to verse 6 and read it again because I want to make a couple points that we didn't have a chance to make last time because of time factors, but I think it's important for us to look and see uh, here the reaction of the children of Israel and then also the reaction of the Philistines. And you recall, again, that it was the children of Israel that said, why has God defeated us? So they cannot understand why they've been defeated. And they had forgotten about the covenant that God had made with them. And the covenant was simply this, that if you obey me, then you're going to have victory and blessing. But if you disobey me and forsake me, then you're going to be defeated by your enemies. So they're blaming God, and then what they do is they get the Ark of the Covenant. And I know that most of you, you know what the Ark of the Covenant is. It was that one furnishing in the Holy of Holies. And it was a, a chest, a box, that was made of acacia wood overlaid with gold, as we saw there in the book of Exodus. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of stone, 
stone where the Ten Commandments were written, a jar of manna, and then Aaron's rod. And then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was a lid. It was made of pure gold. It would have been very, very heavy. And that lid had two cherubims, and in between the cherubim was a flat place that was called the mercy seat. And the Lord told Moses that the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was to be placed in the Holy of Holies. And of course, we know from Leviticus chapter 16 that the high priest, he was the only one that was allowed to go behind that veil into the Holy of Holies once a year to make atonement for the sins of the nation as he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice there on the mercy seat. But the Lord told Moses, that's where I'm going to meet with you between the cherubim. So it represented the Shekinah glory of God, the tangible presence of God. It's where the glory of God would shine from there in the Holy of Holies. And of course, um, it would be there in the wilderness for those 40 years in the middle of the camp was the tabernacle um, as they wandered through the wilderness. But when they came into the promised land, the tabernacle would end up at Shiloh, as we know from the book of Joshua, chapter 18. And there it was um, in Shiloh for almost 400 years up to this time. And there the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. And all of a sudden they take the Ark of the Covenant out. And it's being led by Eli's two sons, again, and uh, it was uh, Hopni and Phinehas that are leading uh, the troops into battle, leading the Ark of the Covenant. And so we read in verse 6, let's read it once again of chapter 4. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So when the children of Israel pulled the Ark of the Covenant out, and here they are saying, it will lead us to victory. They're not really trusting in God. There's real no devotion to God. There's a lot of emotion, but no true devotion. And so there's this great shout. The Philistines across the valley, they hear this shout, and they're going, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on. And they realize, and they understood, that the Ark of the Covenant had come into the camp. So verse 7, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now, I do find it very interesting that they're referring to all that which took place there in the book of Exodus some 400 years prior to this. This is the God, and, and they don't fully understand that there's only one God. They're thinking, you know, they, they worship multiple gods, and these are the gods that struck the Egyptians. But they had heard the testimonies and the stories of how God struck the Egyptians 400 years previously. Now, you remember that in Joshua chapter 2, when the children of Israel would come into the promised land, the first battle that they went against was Jericho, wasn't it? And so Joshua sent a couple spies into Jericho, and there was Rahab the harlot, and she hid the spies. And you remember what Rahab said to those spies? She said, we know that your God is truly God, and I know that your God is God because we heard what your God did 40 years previously to the Egyptians and how he parted the Red Sea and you crossed on dry land. And it was Rahab 
had gave her, her life, her heart, and, and believed in the Lord. She had faith in the Lord. We know that because she was spared, and we also know that she's mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a remarkable story of God's grace being extended to this Gentile woman who was a harlot, and how as we come to Jesus Christ in faith, we too come to uh, that uh, you know, a part where we also are included in the hall of faith as well. And, and we have forgiveness of sin, and we have the hope of heaven. And so she responded by surrendering her heart to Jesus Christ, or to the Lord at that time, and she was one that, that repented. Well, here are the Philistines, that here it is 400 years later, and they've heard the same stories, which means that they heard those stories generation after generation after generation after generation, didn't they? For 400 years. And what is their response? Their response is, we're going to continue to fight against God. And, and we're going to, to not submit ourselves to the Lord. And oftentimes that can be with people. They, they can hear the story about how Jesus died on the cross for them and he rose from the grave. And that gets passed along. We can share it. And they hear it on TV or, or whatever it might be. But yet people have one or two reactions. One, they will submit their lives to the Lord or they'll continue to fight against the Lord. And they'll continue to resist the good news of the gospel. And that's why it's very important when we share with others that we just pray, Lord, that you would just touch their hearts and soften their hearts and take the blindness away that they may be touched with the message and your Holy Spirit may convict their hearts to surrender to you. And here are the Philistines. They said, you know, it's the same God that struck the Egyptians in, in the wilderness. So verse 9, be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. Now a couple things here. One of them stands up and says, you guys, you need to quit your crying and quit your sniveling and you need to fight like men. And he says, be strong, one of them, and conduct yourselves like men. If you have a King James, I believe it's written, quit you like men, is what it says there in the King James. There's only one other place in the scriptures where you find that same wording, and a lot of you know that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. We went over that text just a couple months ago when we finished the book of 1 Corinthians. When Paul's writing to that church, he's given them one last exhortation. And he says to them that, that you watch and stand fast in the faith in what? You be brave. The King James quit you like men. And you be strong is what Paul says to them. And here's the same idea that this Philistine that stands up who says, you know what, you need to be strong and quit you like men. Or be brave is what he's saying. And you go and fight. You don't want to be slaves to them. You don't want to be as, as they have been to us. You see, the children of Israel, unfortunately, have been slaves to the Philistines at this time. At this time, the Philistines are at the height of their power and, and, and uh, domination over the children of Israel. They're going to be the main enemies of the children of Israel as we read through First Samuel. But we're going to see that they're going to begin to be defeated. And so the children of Israel have been under the submission, as we saw in the book of Judges, to the Philistines. And so this one stands up and says, you need to, to be like men and fight. And the point that I want to make tonight is simply this. 
that if the Philistines say that, how much more the church that we need to stand up and say we need to be brave and we need to be strong. And you see, not just for us men, certainly we do. And I believe that, that the church cries out that, that men, we need to be ones that we take on that battle that has been given to us. And, and not just for us men, but all of us who name the name of Jesus Christ. And as we discussed on Sunday morning, we don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power and spiritual wickedness in high places. There's a spiritual battle that takes place, and we need to be ones that we are brave and strong to where we are fighting the good fight. And that's what I hope and pray that all of us would just be ones that would just say, Lord, help me in fighting this fight that is out there, this battle that's out there. And what are our weapons? Our weapons are this, is prayer, as we discussed on Sunday morning, that we go to the Lord in prayer, and that our weapon is God's word, the truth of God's word that we stand on. And, and our weapon is love and loving others and giving them the truth of God's word. But there's a real spiritual battle that has taken place. And I really firmly believe this, that it takes tremendous courage for any of us who are believers to really stand for the Lord in the day in which we're living in. It would be Paul the Apostle at the end of his life that would say, that I have fought the good fight. And it is a fight that's out there. We're likened to soldiers. Paul told Timothy, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're likened to that athlete that has to run that race. And we are likened to one that is fighting a spiritual battle as we are told to put on the whole armor of God. And I do pray for each and every one of us that we would say, Lord, I understand that your commandment to me is to be strong and of good courage, and that we would take on that which we would say, Lord, I'm going to stand for you, and I'm going to fight that good fight, not in and of ourselves, but, Lord, with you helping me and enabling me, and to stand for truth, and to be engaged in prayer, and to stand up for our families, be praying for our children, for our spouses, our loved ones, be praying for those that are linked to us in our lives, those who are unbelievers, that we need to be committed to prayer, we need to be committed to standing on the truth of God's word, and you keep fighting the good fight, you keep running your race. And so here he stands up, this Philistine, and says, conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, verse 10, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hopni, and Phinehas died. And so they were defeated. It was a great slaughter. 30,000 end up dying, and the ark is captured, and it's gone. And all of a sudden, we see that Eli's two sons are dead as well, as prophesied again, as I mentioned to you back in chapter 2, verse 34. So verse 12 we read, Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So here they were having this battle between Apek and Ebenezer, about 20 miles from Shiloh. And, and he, this man of Benjamin, has to run 20 miles uphill. His clothes are torn, his dirt all over him. They've been defeated, and he's going to bring the news of the battle to the people of Shiloh. It is interesting that there are, you know, customs and tradition that says that this man of Benjamin 
was Saul. We don't know for sure because the scripture does not identify this individual as Saul, but we do know that Saul, the first king of Israel, and we'll see Saul being anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel in just a few chapters, that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So perhaps this could be Saul, but we don't know for sure. But whoever it was, he ran and he comes to Shiloh in verse 13. When, when he came there, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city, he told it, and all the city cried out. So here he is, this, this man coming. He's telling the people in Shiloh that the, the Israelites, we fled the battle line, and there was a great slaughter. And the ark of the covenant has been captured. And, and Hopni and Phineas are now dead, the two priests. And can you imagine the cry that's beginning to, to spread throughout the city as the news begins to spread? There would not be one single person here in Shiloh that would not have a loved one or somebody that very close to or know that was you know, killed in this battle. They, they, this is a great tragedy here. And then the ark's been captured and the two priests have been killed. This is a, a, a very, very tragic day in, in their history. And there's Eli. He's, he's very old at this time. In verse 14, he heard the noise of the outcry and said, what does the sound of this tumult mean? And the men came quickly and told Eli. So here's Eli. We know that verse 15 tells us he's 98 years old. His eyes are so dim that he could not see. He's hearing all the commotion that's going on, isn't he? And he's hearing the cries of the people, and he's wondering, oh, what is the news? And this obviously is not good news. But notice there in verse 13 that his heart trembled. And good reason that his heart trembled. Because he knows that what he's about to hear is not going to be good at all. In John chapter 14, Jesus would tell his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And where I go, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And Jesus had told his disciples that in John chapter 14 because they were troubled in their hearts. Jesus had been talking about dying, that he was going to go away. And where he was going, that they couldn't come. And one of you is going to betray me. And all of you, and especially you, Peter, specifically, you're going to deny me. So they were very much troubled in their hearts on that night. And Jesus comes along and says, you don't have to be troubled in your heart. Believe in me. And he would go on to say, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And you know where I'm going. And I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die for you. And they didn't fully understand it till after the resurrection. But their hearts would be comforted in knowing that Jesus Christ had provided for them real hope. And the scripture says, as Peter would hear those words from John chapter 14, later on in his epistle in 1 Peter, he would write that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here tonight. Maybe somebody's here. Maybe you're troubled in your heart about something. Maybe it's about finances. Maybe it's about relationships. Maybe it's about, you know, other circumstances and situations that are troubling to you. And I just want to bring comfort to you, and I want to bring you words of encouragement from our Lord that says, don't be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. You have the hope of heaven. You have the hope of of knowing that you have forgiveness of sin. You have a living hope. And knowing that the Lord is with you and his promises are true. And we can be comforted in our hearts knowing that, Lord, I have you. And you dwell in my heart. And your word is true. And you're going to work on on my behalf. You stay true to the Lord. And you keep looking to him and trusting and resting in his love. And the Lord says, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be troubled. Because I'm going to come and take you to be with me someday. And so I know that the circumstances that we face today are difficult and hard and and challenging. But know this, that the Lord loves you. And he loved you then to where he died for you. Know that he loves you now to where he's going to work on your behalf. So Eli is then told the news as it begins to spread. Verse 15, as we read, he's 98 years old. His eyes were dim. He could not see. So verse 16, then the man (coughs) said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle. And I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been a great slaughter among the people. Also, your two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. He says, what happened? What's the news? And it's almost like, well, do you want the bad news or the really bad news? And the bad news is, is that Israel fled from the battle line. And there was a great slaughter, which is worse news. And even worse news than that, two of your sons, your two sons were killed. But even the worst news is that the ark has been captured. And so verse 8, then it happened. When he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. So it continues to get worse. Now their spiritual leader is gone. He hears the news, not about his two sons, not about there's a great slaughter, not that they were defeated, but what really would send him probably into where he had cardiac arrests or a heart attack and he fell over and broke his neck is when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. And when he hears that news, he falls over. Now Israel has lost their spiritual leader, their judge. For Eli had judged Israel for the last 40 years. And so verse 19, now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So here is Phineas' wife, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law. She's with child. She gets news. She gets news that, that her husband is dead, that the ark has been captured. She's hearing news that her father-in-law is, is now dead as well. And so she would go into labor at that point, and she's about ready to die. And right before she dies, she gives birth to a son, and she calls him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory has departed because the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. So again, the Ark of the Covenant was that furnishing 
where again, the, the kind of glory of God was to be the tangible presence of God between the cherubim. But here's the thing. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured, but the glory of God had departed a long time ago because there was no devotion in the land. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, he was off into Babylon. He was taken captive. Just as Daniel was taken captive, Ezekiel would be taken captive, and he's prophesying in Babylon. And he has a vision there of the temple, Solomon's temple, as he's prophesying. And he has this vision before Nebuchadnezzar would come in and destroy the temple, a few years after Ezekiel has that vision. And in that vision, there the temple, uh, Solomon's temple, that temple that was dedicated to God and was to have the Ark of the Covenant there again in that permanent structure in Jerusalem where the high priest went in and again the Shekinah glory of God was. And in that temple of Solomon's that was dedicated to God, what they had done in their idol worship is set up idols everywhere. And so Ezekiel sees this vision of the glory of God lifting from the temple and then moving and then going over the Mount of Olives and leaving. The glory of God had departed. But you see, the glory of God can depart, and it does depart when there's no devotion and true love to Him. You see, the Ark of the Covenant, as Solomon would dedicate the temple, he, he would say, this building cannot contain you, Lord. You're the one that created the heavens and the earth. We, we understand that. But they were the only nation where they had the tangible presence of God in the wilderness wandering, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And whenever the, the glory of God moved, they were to follow that, that pillar until it stopped. And it was to be a symbol of their true devotion and commitment to the Lord. It would be Jesus, the glory of God that was in their midst, and they didn't even recognize him. What I pray for us as a church, what I pray for your family, that it's never written Ichabod. The glory has departed. Because all of a sudden we get distracted and we get pulled into the things of the world and begin to, to set our hearts and our minds on the pleasures of the world or we get involved in sin, whatever it might be. You see, the glory of God had departed way before 1 Samuel chapter 4. Because the people were looking to the Ark of the Covenant, a box, rather than looking to the Lord. And it's interesting that sometimes that people will look to a, 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 a relic or they'll look to a ritual to, to deliver them or find favor with God or to get what they want or try to appease God or whatever it might be when the Lord says, what I want is your heart. I want devotion. I want relationship. I don't want religion. I want relationship. Jesus would write a letter to the church of Ephesus, and I'm sure that you're familiar with that letter. And even as a church, what can happen is we can get so busy with things, and, and I believe the Lord desires for us to be used in a lot of ways. And, and the church of Ephesus was a dynamic church where they were working and standing on truth, and the Lord wrote a letter to them and said, that I know your works and I know your patience and I know that you're standing on truth and you're, you're pointing out that which is false. And he commended them on this, but he said, I do have this against you. You've left your first love. And he said, return to that first love and if you don't, I'm going to remove my lampstand from you. And the Lord will not be in our midst 
in this church. And the glory of God would not be evident in our homes if there isn't devotion and true love for Him. And that is my prayer more than anything as we end this year and as we enter into another year that we would all, as a church and as a family, as individuals, just continue to grow in our love for the Lord and our devotion for Him. And that we would just continue in looking to Him and knowing Him more. And that's what He desires. And as we do, we're going to see the glory of the Lord manifested through us as we just show that love to others and stand on His truth. And as we care about people and as we share the good news of the gospel with others. So the glory of the Lord had departed a long time ago because their hearts weren't right with the Lord. So in chapter 5, then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to Ebenezer, to Ashdod. We know that Ashdod was one of the five major cities of the Philistines. And as we go through this chapter, we're going to see that the Philistines, again, had five major cities in their territory. Now, the Philistines ruled over that area just west of Jerusalem, over by the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So they were in that area, and again, they had taken large portions of, of the land of Israel and, and um, had you know, conquered them, and, and the Israelites were slaves to the Philistines at this time. So what they do is they bring the Ark of the God over to Ashdod, their major city, and when the Philistines, verse 2, took the Ark of God, they brought it to the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. So they're in Ashdod. They had a temple that was dedicated to their god, Dagon. And Dagon was half fish and half man kind of figure. And it was an idol. And it is believed that Dagon was to be the father of Baal. Now, Baal worship was very big in Israel when they turned to other idols. They were worshiping Baal, Astaroth. Baal was the god of weather. He was the god of agriculture. It all kind of connected together, you know, to have good crops, you needed rain and all of this. And, and they would worship Baal. We know later on in their history that the house of Israel, the ten northern tribes, had a huge temple that was dedicated to Baal. So Baal worship, here's Dagon that the Philistines are, are worshiping. So what they do is they brought the ark of God, they brought it to the house of Dagon, and they set it by Dagon. Now here's what you've got to keep in mind. When they sat the Ark of the Covenant there at, at, uh, by Dagon, what it's indicating is they sat that chest right at the feet or the fins of Dagon and that the Ark of the Covenant was in a position of bowing down to Dagon. So their mindset was whenever in the ancient world that one country conquered another country or defeated the enemy, it meant that their God was more superior than their enemies' gods, or the ones that they defeated. So they saw Dagon as being superior over the God of Israel. So that's what they're saying here. That's what it symbolizes here. You remember um, that in the book of Isaiah, in chapters 36, 37, in, in that, that, um, that portion of the book of Isaiah, where it records when the king of Assyria would come down and take the ten northern tribes off into captivity. They came down into the house of Judah. They conquered many of the cities there, and they came to Jerusalem and surrounded Jerusalem. And the king of Assyria is hurling these threats against Hezekiah and saying, Hezekiah, who is this God of yours that you're telling the people to trust in 
that can stop us. None of the other countries' gods have been able to do that. So that was their mindset. The Philistines thought that our god, Dagon, is superior to the God of Israel. And so we're going to put the chest here as a trophy, this special trophy, and he's going to be, in a way, he's going to be, you know, bowing to our Dagon God, and we see that something happens after that as we read in verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon falling on his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So he took Dagon and sat in his place again. So they come early into their temple, Dagon has fallen over. And they're wondering what's going on. So they put it up in its place once again. Because we know that no other God can stand before our God. And we also know that Philippians chapter 2 declares to us that the day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we that have done that, we have done that willingly in this lifetime. Surrender the hearts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we are children of God. We have peace with God. Again, we are the children of God that have the hope of heaven. But the day is going to come, even at the judgment. It's appointed once for men to die and then the judgment. And what is being told to us there in Philippians chapter 2, that even those who reject the Lord at the great white throne judgment, that they will be forced to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will bow to the Lord but it will be too late. No one can stand before God and claim that you know, they're superior or they've made it on their own. No other God can stand before our God. And every tongue will confess, whether in heaven or under the heavens, is what Paul writes, on the earth, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I don't think it's worth getting into long discussions about, but there's been news that's been coming out. Some more news came out today uh, in, the, in the news about some recent discoveries that scientists have found that they indicate that there's possibly could be life out there in the universe. And so somebody was asking me, do you think there's life in the universe? And what if there is life in the universe? And to me, it doesn't matter. Personally, I don't think there is. But if there is, the scripture says that every knee in heaven and under the heavens are going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And that's what the scriptures declare. So here is Dagon. He's fallen over. So they got to prop him up on his feet or on his fins. I don't know what kind of God that is that you have to prop back up. But we read here in, 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 in um, verse 4, And when they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon falling on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon... And both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left on it. And therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So they come in the next day. This time he's fallen over and his you know, hands, palms are broken and his head is broken. Only his torso is left. So they have to prop him back up. And instead of realizing and acknowledging that the God of Israel was superior as they've heard the story of how God defeated the Egyptians, as they're seeing this happen, that, you know, what kind of God, again, when, when people don't know the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord, they're, they're involved in foolish thinking and foolish actions. I mean, why don't they realize that this is no accident 
And what kind of God is this that we have to prop him back up and we have to glue his hands back on and his head back on? Not much of a God, is it? But yet they continue to, to, to go their foolish ways and their foolish thinking, and so they make a tradition out of it or a ritual, and they say, well, let's not tread on the threshold of Dagon lest something bad happens to us. So they continue here in verse 6, but the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Now it's interesting here, what are these tumors? And there's a lot of debate on exactly what these tumors are. And in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word gives an indication of swelling and some kind of blood flow. So some commentators and scholars have suggested that these guys have been struck with hemorrhoids, some serious hemorrhoids that are taking place. Um, there's been some other suggestions, and that's bad enough if they've been struck with hemorrhoids, but other suggestions have been that it's some kind of plague and some kind of uh, buponic uh, plague um, because what we're going to see in the next chapter is they're going to make a trespass offering and they're going to make these five golden tumors. How exactly you do that, I don't know. Um, or a tumor of a hemorrhoid or whatever it might be. Um, and then five uh, golden rats. And so some have suggested that it's a buponic plague and, of course, that is spread by what? By rats. And there is a swelling that takes place, and there's some, you know, fluids and things involved, I guess, in it and all that. I personally think it's some kind of plague that's taking place because we're going to see that there's great destruction that is described to the cities here. And so the Lord strikes them with these tumors in Ashdod in his territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is harsh towards us, and Dagon our God. So again, the foolish thinking, why don't they just submit to the Lord and surrender their hearts to him? And, and they're realizing that Dagon is no God, you know, compared to, to the God of Israel here. He's striking Dagon and knocking his head off and palms, and we're getting struck with these tumors. In verse 8, Therefore they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. So they carried the ark of God of Israel away. That was real nice of them. We'll carry it to the next town. So verse 9, so it was after they carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, with tumors and broke out on them. So thanks a lot, guys. They're in Ashdod. We'll take it to the next city so more destruction can happen. And again, that just a rebellion against God and a hardness of heart against God, it just shows us the foolishness of decisions that people make. And that's just not on the Philistine side, but we also saw it on Israel's side in their rebellion against God. And that's why I keep pressing this point that I pray for us that we would always realize that we have opportunity to walk in true wisdom, and wisdom is knowing God's word and then having it worked out in our lives. And we don't have to walk in foolishness. But Lord, you have showed us how it is that we are to live and the way to walk, and your ways are good. And it brings real, you know, sound decisions, and there's safety and security in that, and a good life to be lived. As we walk in God's wisdom, but not in foolishness, here we're seeing destruction and defeat that's taken place in these two chapters and will continue. 
because there's a failure to submit to the Lord and be devoted to him and know his ways. And so here in Gath, the city is struck, and so verse 10, therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So good luck to you guys. So it was that the ark of God came to Ekron, and Ekronites cried out, saying they brought the ark of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people, for there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with the tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You know, sometimes people read the Old Testament, and they think, you know, God is so hard, and the judgment is coming here. But really what I see here is the hand of God's mercy reached out to them. He's trying to get them to turn to him. And yes, there is judgment that is coming. But there's opportunity they've had for 400 years to turn to the Lord and to cry out to Him. And He started out by, by showing them that He is superior and knocked over their gods and struck them with tumors. And then all of a sudden, their hardness of heart continues here. And it didn't have to be this way. All they had to do was turn to the Lord, but they refused to do that. So they're stricken with this great destruction and, and tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So chapter 6, a couple of verses, and then we'll finish here tonight. And the ark of the Lord was with the country of the Philistines seven months. Why all this time when all this destruction is, is going on? It's because I believe that they thought, we got this special trophy. This is the most important article, you know, and piece of furnishing of, of the children of Israel, we don't want to let it go. So they were stubborn and foolish in keeping it for seven months, this destruction is going through the territories and the cities of the Philistines. There's the stench of death and the smell of death that's taken place because of, of their stubbornness and rebellion. You know, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. You know, the work of Jesus Christ will either bring life which it has to us. For we who have submitted our lives to him, it has brought life. And as you are walking in the ways of the Lord, and as you're submitted to him, there's going to be a fragrance that you're going to, to have that, that others are going to notice, that aroma of life that they're going to see in you. And I don't think that, that we always realize how much that people really see that. And yeah, they may snicker at you and they may you know, come down on you, but when the bottom line comes, they see an aroma of life that has taken place the blessing of the Lord that's in your heart, the glory of God is being manifested because you're devoted to him. And unfortunately, what we see with people who are in rebellion against the Lord and refuse to surrender to the Lord, there's that aroma of death that's taken place. And I don't mean to say that to be, you know, so judgmental and critical, but it's the truth. There's just a deadness that is in their hearts and it's shown in the way that they live their lives. And what I pray is that this Christmas season, as we're with friends and you're with coworkers and as you gather with other family members, 
that the fragrance of Jesus Christ would really be in you, being demonstrated and, and displayed, and that there's an aroma of life that others are, are seeing and smelling, and, and, and it's evident because you have the Lord in your life. And that they see the glory of God being manifested in you. And that we would have opportunity to really be able to share with others the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, and to tell them about life. That they can have that same life in them if they just surrender to Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you for these important reminders and and Lord, as we'll continue through this book, just so many wonderful applications to be made. Father, we thank you for this time of year where we reflect on the birth of Jesus, the greatest gift that was given to us, your Son. The greatest gift that as he was born in Bethlehem, we celebrate his birth, but he was born so that later he would go and die for us. And the gifts of salvation may be available to us. What I pray is that the fragrance of, of life would be radiating from us and evident in the way that we live, in the wisdom that we walk in. And Father, that we would just continue to grow in our devotion to you. Lord, we come tonight just to continue in our worship. And Lord, I believe it's so important that we do that tonight because at this time of the year, I know for me, it's, it seems like we're just so busy. And that's okay in a lot of ways, but Lord, we want, don't want to forget to slow down and give our devotion to you and our worship to you. We do that right now. Father, I do pray for everyone here. You know their hearts as they come into this place. Maybe troubled. Maybe there's difficulty. Or maybe there's, Lord, just sadness. Maybe there's great joy, whatever it might be, that you would meet us here. Touch our hearts. And that we just right now will give our hearts to you in worship. To, Lord, just speak to you, to listen to your still small voice. Bless your people at this time. Again, we thank you for being in your word and being encouraged tonight and learning, Lord, being reminded of just how important it is to know you and to love you, the most important thing in our lives. And that's our desire. May that be the cry of our hearts right now. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. And I'll be over on the side if you need any prayer for anything in